Welcome back to another pre-market open live stream. Dow futures down about a third of a percent. S&P down about 2.8. NASDAQ down about 0.4. Break-evens on the five-year inflation rate is still sitting at about 2.3. Personally, I'm still of the major mindset that we've got to see that number somehow work its way all the way down to 1.5, 1.6 before the Federal Reserve is going to be comfortable with an ultimate pivot. Though it's possible just like that has risen very quickly in the past, we could see that fall very quickly in the future. So for now, we'll have to be patient on that one. We do have uh, some uh, reports coming out today. We have the S&P PMIs coming out for the United States as well as uh, some other countries like uh, in, within Europe. You've got uh, manufacturing services and the composite PMIs coming out at 6.45 California time this morning, 9.45 Eastern looking at surveys of 46, 45, and 46.4 in order, manufacturing services composite. All of those are measures that 50 would equal an equal amount of companies or reporters indicating, or people reporting, uh, indicating contraction under 50 or expansion over 50. When you're at 50, you're balanced. If the average number is coming in under 50, it means more people who are responding to the survey or more companies responding are suggesting the economy seems like it's in contraction. So we'll see what those numbers look like. Uh, so far, pretty much all of the numbers have been coming in pretty ugly, and it's definitely remotivating some of the bear cases for a lot of folks. Uh, I think that's potentially also why we're seeing a slight little pullback in futures here. Although, <laughs> I will say, the futures market has been pretty bad at actually determining what's going to happen in the day I've noticed. It seems more like Bitcoin uh, is has lately at least been the leader of what's probably going to happen in the day. And when we look at Bitcoin, well... It's up a third of a percent, whereas Dow futures and S&P futures are down a third of a percent. So I'll go with Bitcoin on this one. Uh, and so far, it, it seems like it has almost sort of led us out of the doldrums of uh, the stock market. Uh, we've started seeing Bitcoin turn right around the 11th of January is really when we started seeing a little bit of a turn uh, in, in Bitcoin pricing. And uh, that's roughly around the same time we started seeing the S&P run towards its 200-day moving average. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, fingers crossed for good news. Unless, of course, you're shorting. In that case, you suck. <laughs> no, it's all good. Everybody's got to hedge their portfolio unless that's the only thing you do. Now, anyway, lot. Uh, uh, you know, we've got obviously earnings today as well. Uh, this morning, you had Johnson Johnson beat. You had Dr. Horton miss, Verizon miss. But I think the big one that a lot of folks are going to be paying attention today is actually Microsoft. Microsoft reports after the bell. I am considering going live after the bell to cover uh, manufacturer or uh, to cover Microsoft. Uh, however, uh, and this is going to sound weird, but the Closing lives, if I do them, I may do them in such a way that I end up uh, deleting the uh, closing bell live streams afterwards. Now, uh, I, I, there's a reason for that. It's It has nothing to do with me or views or trying to get people to click the closing lives or whatever. Uh, it, it will end up having to do with uh, sort of compliance and, and legal requirements. Uh, but 
that doesn't mean I can't uh, enjoy streaming that with you. It just means it'll it'll disappear uh, after. <laughs> so that that would be for the closing bell. Uh, so we'll pay attention or keep an eye out for the closing bell. We'll see if I end up streaming. But I think it'd be fun to cover Microsoft. So pay attention to that. Uh, then uh, we do have some interesting uh, things going on in the Twitter space. Uh, mostly Mr. Uh, Elon Musk getting called Mr. Tweet yesterday in his court case where uh, he is being sued for fraud over the 420, taking Tesla private at 420 tweet. Uh, yesterday in court, personally, I don't think terribly much happened, but to give you a quick rundown, essentially, we know that Elon Musk has been getting sued over this idea that some investors sold Tesla stock because they thought Elon was going to take Tesla private at 420. That would not have represented a handsome enough profit for them. So they sold out and then ended up missing the three to four X run that Tesla has been on since then. In my opinion, they're lost since they had plenty of an opportunity to buy the thing back before, uh, before the run, but they missed out on that. Weenie babies. Uh, anyway, now they're suing Elon Musk. And so in court yesterday, we heard a lot of ideas from Elon Musk about how, well, I mean, even though the Saudi sovereign wealth fund hadn't actually committed to doing the deal, it was verbally committed. And then only later in writing via minutes that were written up by the uh, private investment fund, uh, did they indicate that the deal was not committed. And so Elon Musk actually went as far as saying, the individual representing the private investment fund was actually covering his AWS and sort of changing things after their verbal discussions. On top of that, Elon believed that funding was secured because he could have sold uh, SpaceX stock to fund the buyout of Tesla. Uh, that's an argument that obviously we'll see if jurors go for. I think it's a uh, uh, pretty compelling, mostly because it's in the face of people who are suing Musk for just not having made enough profit. And I don't think that argument is going to go very well in San Francisco, since uh, a lot of individuals who are suing him are really just suing him over this, at least that's what it appears like, are suing Musk over this idea that they should have been able to make more money than they did. <laughs> I don't think the San Francisco court's going to go be super happy about that one. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, this morning uh, we had uh, Esther George from the Kansas City Fed. She's actually retiring soon, uh, and uh, she urged her colleagues to exit the mortgage-backed security market, which is quite interesting because the Treasury or the uh, Federal Reserve right now is rolling off about sixty billion dollars of Treasuries, thirty-five billion of mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and the more they, they roll off mortgage-backed securities, the more you actually push mortgage rates up. And I understand bonds can be really, really tricky. So to keep it really simple, just think to yourself, when they roll off bonds, they're putting less buying pressure on the market. Less buyers, price down. Price down, yields up. Yields up, interest rates up for mortgages, right? Uh, however, there's there's a lot of argument over at the Federal Reserve that uh, they actually need to start selling mortgage-backed securities because they're uh, falling substantially behind on uh, their their uh, plans to to roll off more mortgage-backed securities, and that's in part because as interest rates go up, less people are motivated to refinance, and if less people are motivated to refinance, 
less pre-principal payments get made to mortgage-backed security portfolios and actually makes it harder to roll off. So they're like way behind on their goals of rolling off mortgage-backed securities. So that's leading Esther George to say, well, let's just not. And that's leading other people to say, no, let's double down and actually just sell mortgage-backed securities, which probably would, would uh, well, either direction. Well, I mean, if they if they just completely did nothing in the mortgage-backed security market, probably wouldn't see much happen to mortgage rates because so far nothing's happened uh, or nominal uh, roll-offs have occurred. However, if they decided to dump mortgage-backed securities, you could potentially see mortgage rates pop up a little bit. Uh, and keep in mind that mortgage rates are uh, frequently uh, aligned with what the 10-year treasury is doing. 10-year treasury has been pretty dang stuck in the mud around 3.5%. Personally, I think you've got to get to somewhere around 25 to really start instituting some excitement again in the real estate market. We'll see. So uh, again, today we've got PMIs, manufacturing data, services data, composite. We've got Microsoft. We've got uh, also a uh, change of bio by Mr. Beast, uh, apparently suggesting that he is now the super official CEO of Twitter. And most people seem to be under the impression that super official means he's not anything, which in my opinion is probably the case. But it's still somewhat entertaining to think that Mr. Beast, with obviously hundreds of millions of followers, uh, could be the uh, super official CEO of Twitter. There you have it. Twitter, super official CEO. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so one other thing that I want to hit, and we've got some uh, deep information we want to get into, but uh, I just want to hit how, how you can um, contribute to this show. Uh, this is the second episode of the Meet Kevin Report, and you could go to metkevin.com slash chat. Join the Discord, and there's actually a section where you can contribute content that you want to see me cover on the show. So again, go to either Matt or Meet, shouldn't matter, uh, metkevin.com slash chat. That should open up the Discord invite for you. And uh, you can also now watch, or should I say listen to this, although I think you could do both, on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Apple Podcast or uh, Google Podcasts about an hour or so after uh, we end up going uh, we end up going live. So uh, something else uh, that's quite interesting <laughs> in case in case podcasting is easier for you. It's also streamed on Twitch and Facebook and I'm not sure if it shows up on Twitter, but supposedly there as well. <laughs> okay, so uh, and then as far as the schedule, my goal is to go live somewhere around 4.30, 4.45 in the morning to about right before the market opens. And then we transition over to the course member live stream and we do course member Q&A, real estate analysis, fundamental analysis, uh, and so on. So let's go ahead and listen in for a moment to this dude who says he's not buying stocks right now. Let's listen in. So what is your cash type of holding versus what it had been, say, six months ago? Have you been building it? Have you been accelerating it to some of the bigger ones you've seen? Well, so, I mean, that's not something we actually do as an insurance company, right? You you bring money in, you put it to work. Um, and so we're, you know, we're very in the weeds in credit and making sure that we like the things that we're in and, and we, you know, we're comfortable with the credit risk we're taking. Um, but you know, it, when we do a relative value assessment, you have to assess cash, and it, that assessment obviously has been improving because the, the rate of return on cash is improving. Mm. In other lives, you were heated about the dots. 
Are the dots efficacious now, or should they be discarded by the Fed? Well, if they are, what they're telling you is they're going to be cutting rates well before inflation drops anywhere close to 2%. They're telling you that. That's not me. That's their dot plot is telling you that. Um, and yet everyone assumes that they're not going to do anything. They're going to be able to sit for a really long period of time, even as in, you know, even as the economy withers. And I don't think that's going to be the case. Interesting. Drew Mattis, wonderful to see a really a pandemic Thank sign you. for all of us at Bloomberg Surveillance. Somebody who's been with us for decades. Drew Mattis is with MetLife. As well. What did we learn there? The idea that cash is an alternative, perhaps not to put your money, but as a comparison versus equities, versus mm -hmm. bonds, versus credit, and what that does in terms of putting a higher bar for taking risk. I learned how many people listening and watching can encourage a 36-month perspective. I would say it's single digits. We have become addicted to, you know, some people three days, some people three months. Nine months is long term. Yeah, all right. Now this dude's going to go rant about short-term mindsets. While he does that, we'll go hop on over here to the actual dot plot. And this is what the individual is talking about. He's talking about the Federal Reserve dot plot where uh, essentially the Fed is telling you that they expect to cut rates in the future. He's not wrong. Of course, the Fed expects to cut rates in the future. And in the long run, the Fed hopes to be able to sit around two to three percent. That's at least where the bulk is. Probably the bulk here sitting at about two and a half percent, which is deemed to be the longer run neutral rate. A lot of markets though expecting, or, or bond markets, various different bond market measures, expecting that the Federal Reserve by the end of this sort of cutting cycle will end up having to go all the way to zero simply because of the depth of the inversion of the yield curve various different measures uh, within the bond market. So we'll see what ends up being uh, correct. Uh, so, <laughs> the bears. All right, uh, let's go ahead and pop on for a moment to CNBC and then we've got some things to cover. Let's see what they have. I cannot talk for others, but we haven't seen any elevation on that debt. Uh, the customers are paying, the linguistics are low. Uh, so very good, but as I said, we saw higher intent when they come into the store than we have seen ever before. We also saw a holiday traffic from the consumers where they waited longer, but they came just days before Christmas and then they did a deal. Usually they started mm. much earlier, so it's new patterns where we see, but overall we see good, good quality on our consumers, no bad debt. You raised your rates. Consumers were able to kind of handle that, and was it enough to keep up with your higher costs? Uh, so we, we made some uh, price increases in the second quarter when we came out from that. Uh, we knew that that will impact our third quarter churn, and it did, uh, and somewhat in the beginning of the fourth. Then the churn came back to the all-time low that we have always been running on, and that's where we are right now. So churn came down. Uh, the price increases we did last year was, of course, uh, uh, a little bit about uh, what's happening with inflation, etc. Mm -hmm. Let's see where inflation is going this year. Some things has actually calmed down when it comes to inflation, but we're always going to look in. But uh, we're going to do it surgical and segmentation. It's not the broad stroke. We're going to see some areas might lower the price and be more aggressive. Some others, I might see here we have an opportunity. And that's the work we do every day on the largest consumer base in this country when it comes to wireless business. Hans, want to thank you for coming in. Hans Vesberg. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, uh, a check on some other early earnings reports. And then uh, Bitcoin on the move again this morning. Crypto firm Grayscale 
Uh, the CEO, Michael Sonnenschein, will join us to discuss uh, the, the move and possible, someday, regulation of the industry. And the Taylor Swift ticket disaster sparking uh, a hearing in Washington today about competitiveness, overcharging, fan safety. We're going to hear from both sides of the aisle on that issue. Stay tuned. All right. So uh, this morning and uh, last night, we've had quite a few negative pieces of information come out about the market. A lot of banks suggesting there's reason not to buy the rally, uh, to not get caught in this idea that, oh, that's it. Uh, peak, uh, peak pain is now behind us and uh, we can move forward in this stock market rally. Uh, the, probably one of the biggest individuals screaming this is Mike Wilson from Morgan State. Stanley. We're going to take a look at some of his notes, but it's not just him. There are a lot of companies screaming, don't buy the rally. And I'd like to pay a little bit of attention to exactly what it is they're saying and observe what the market is doing in response to bad news. I think one of the easiest ways to look at what the market is doing in response to bad news is to look at how companies are performing following their earnings reports. So, we just had Logitech report earnings, and Logitech's uh, earnings weren't that great. Logitech announces uh, the third quarter 2023 uh, results. They did so uh, last night, Switzerland, January 24th. Uh, and they indicated that sales were down 22% in U.S. dollars, and they blame the macroeconomic environment on this. They say that gaming sales were down 16% in U.S. dollars, keyboard sales down 22%, pointing devices down 14%, video collab sales down 17%, and a reflection that consumer purchasing was concentrated in promotional weeks throughout the quarter. Now, we just heard the Verizon CEO say that uh, people were kind of buying or spending money in, in lumpy periods, that people were still buying, but they're doing so in sort of lumps. That's roughly what Logitech is telling us. And it's also what Macy said, that a bulk of the spending was happening during promotional periods of time. And that can actually be a sign of some stress from the consumer, that consumers are waiting until the last absolute minute or last possible minute to depart with their cash, maybe because cash is becoming a little bit harder to come by because either they've been laid off, their hours are getting cut. We are seeing hours drop uh, for hours worked on labor surveys, which is taking some pressure off of wages. And we're also obviously seeing the savings rate plummet. But not only that, the amount of savings that individuals have in America is now lower than where we were before the pandemic. So you're seeing that drawdown as well as an increase in deficit spending, taking on debt to spend money to support a lifestyle or to support spending. Now, uh, what I thought was remarkable was most of the damage for Logitech stock was actually on January 12th when they pre-guided that some of this pain was to come. The stock fell from about 68 to about 56. However, after the actual earnings came out, the stock barely moved. And if we look back to December or we look back to some of the lows of last year, 
even with some of these terrible Q4 earnings, you're not seeing companies fall back to levels that we had seen at the end of last year, suggesting that some of the pain that we're looking at in the stock market uh, may already be priced in, or potentially more pain than was necessary was priced in way back at the end of last year. Now you, again, do have a lot of investment analysts saying, be careful. The leading data is overwhelmingly negative. And this is where you have folks like Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson suggesting that the stock market still has a large correction ahead of it, potentially as high as a 20% correction coming. More, uh, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson suggests that the S&P with a forward 17.5 times price to earnings multiple is too optimistic that the S&P is basically pricing in a less hawkish Fed, it's pricing in a Goldilocks scenario, and it's not really pricing in an earnings miss. In fact, they suggest that 70% of exposure for US companies is to America, which means even as the dollar weakens, providing some relief for companies with international exposure, most of the S&P 500 well, 70% of its earnings come from the United States, where the United States is actually the one potentially lagging more than the rest of the world. This is actually kind of crazy. In fact, I joked about this last year. I go, wouldn't it be crazy because everybody's calling for a recession in Europe and everybody thinks we're going to get through without a recession in the United States. Wouldn't it be crazy if it's the US that goes through a recession and not Europe? And in a weird way, that's kind of how things are looking right now. It's almost as if the United States is destined for a recession, whereas now you've got Germany and France saying, hey, growth's gonna be low. Germany just came out with a 0.2% estimate, but we think we're gonna skate past without a recession, especially as their winter wasn't as hard as expected. And in part, this is leading the emerging markets and international community to see their stocks rally above and beyond that of the United States. Consider that Europe is up about 12% since October lows, whereas the United States is only up about 4.85% since October. In fact, if you look at the MSCI World Index and subtract out the United States, the rest of the world is up 19% to our about 5%. So the rest of the world is actually substantially more optimistic than the United States right now, which is basically the opposite of what everyone was expecting last year, that this was an international problem. The United States would be able to weather this, this sort of inflationary pain more. Maybe we printed too much money and that actually isn't actually going to be true. But anyway, uh, Mike Wilson here suggests that the hard data and survey data all points to a recession and earnings per share declines. They think that the big pain is actually going to occur in Q1. So this is a big warning from Mike Wilson and those over at Morgan Stanley, suggesting that we have to be careful that the full reopening in China will not be enough to help the United States. They say that the S&P 500 only has about 4% of its shares exposed to the United uh, or exposed to China. Uh, so the Chinese reopening shouldn't actually show up in earnings really at all is what they're suggesting. Now, this is where I think it's very fascinating. Something that you can do 
is you can go look at your own stocks. Let's say, for example, you're really interested in pricing power stocks. You could look at your individual stocks and say, oh, wow, look, NVIDIA, 25% exposure to China. That alone is already five times more than the United States average exposure to China in the S&P 500. AMD is about 25% exposure to China. Taiwan, massive, uh, Taiwan Semiconductors, massive international exposure. Uh, you've got uh, Tesla, 45% international exposure. Apple, substantially large international exposure. I could show you how to calculate that as well. It's pretty simple, but usually what I like to do is I like to just go investor relations, throw that into Google, type in something like investor relations and then the company you're looking for. And then when that investor relations page pops up, grab the last quarterly or annual report. And generally, pretty soon after the revenue section on the income statement, you actually see a geographic breakdown, which is useful, obviously, for understanding what's your exposure to emerging markets. You'd be surprised, but a lot of US companies actually give you a lot of international exposure. The S&P 500 in aggregate doesn't though. And this is where a lot of folks say the biggest recession might be coming to larger indices and not individual stocks. This is where we're also seeing a lot of data pointing to retail buying actively managed ETFs or individual stocks more than they're buying uh, index-based ETFs at this point. Fascinating argument. Let's keep looking here at Mike Wilson though. Mike Wilson here suggests that in January of 2001, forward earnings per share were down 4.5% from the peak. And he actually says that, remember that in January of 2001, we were about a year, eight months into the dot-com bubble. He actually thinks we're in the same place today as we were in January of 2001. And keep in mind, the stock market didn't actually bottom out until about the end of 2002, early 2003, where we were kind of flat. Now, in fairness, and this is something that Mike Wilson does not mention, today's stock market plummet has occurred about three times as fast as the drawdown that we had in 2000 uh, to 2003, suggesting that maybe today we would actually recover three times as fast. Who knows? But he makes some other comparisons, such as where PMIs are and where the unemployment rate is, basically saying the recession has not been priced in yet. And what ended up happening between January of 2001 and March of 2001 was a 20% drawdown through the end of March and a shallow labor cycle thereafter. And monetary policy at the time was not accommodative enough to compensate for those deteriorating fundamentals. And he ends up saying that, look, 5% rates today by the Fed is going to be very hawkish in the face of bad news. Uh, Mike Wilson goes on pretty heavily here to show all of the bad news and all of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt you could potentially put together in a report to reiterate why the stock market rally now is ridiculous. Now, stock market seems to disagree because obviously we've had a pretty strong move over just the last couple weeks, but then again, the stock market has a very short-term mindset, uh, whereas data obviously it tends to represent longer periods of time. Although sometimes by the time we actually get the data and the data shows that maybe we're in a recessionary environment, sometimes it actually argues that it could be, or we could actually argue that it could be the best potential time to actually buy, even if there's more pain ahead. Look, for example, here, CEO confidence about the economy. 
bottomed out over here. It's a little large. Uh, let's do that a little smaller. There we go. CEO confidence about the economy bottomed out in about 2009, which is roughly where the, uh, the stock market bottomed out. Now, it did bottom out in about 2001, which is not yet where the stock market bottomed. And look at where we sit right now, pretty painfully low. If you look at uh, small businesses, what percentage of small businesses think it's a good time to expand? Pretty dang low levels right now, kind of like what we saw in the COVID recession. And if you compare that to 2009, you didn't really get the bottom of, of small business expansionary thought until about 2009. Again, that was actually buy time. So in a weird way, some of Mike Wilson's charts here, even though he's trying to be bearish about the market, in my opinion, are kind of signaling a screaming buy. Don't get me wrong, but I am that kind of crazy person, and I realize that I feel like you have to kind of be crazy to, to, to do what I do and, and to want to work as much as I do. I don't encourage it for anyone. But what I actually believe, and I wholeheartedly believe this, but I believe that a recession is one of the best times to expand. It's one of the reasons I've added another course. Remember, we've got a coupon code expiring on January 30th for that. It's one of the reasons I bought a plane to expand my startup, and I personally bought that plane. Uh, $0 have been charged to my uh, to my company, uh, my, my real estate startup for that, because I'm basically, what I'm doing is I'm making this life YOLO, thinking this is the time to build. This is the time to launch an ETF. This is the time to launch a startup. This is the time to launch everything that I can and expand my businesses, because nobody else thinks it's time to do so. I love that. Personally, I think the worst time to do it is here, right? Uh, so anyway, uh, that's just my thesis, obviously. Then you have ISM PMIs, manufacturing surveys, obviously plummeting, drops in ISM below 50, sending recessionary signals. I mean, there are no shortages of charts pointing down, suggesting, yes, Mike Wilson, you are correct. Things look painful. Inventories are rising, supply chains are loosening. However, one of the big differences that Mike Wilson forgets is that these charts actually provide a counter-narrative to his FUD. See, a lot of investors today, especially people like Michael Burry, argue that, wait a minute, folks, we gotta take a seat back here because wait a minute, what if the Fed ends up cutting rates because we're in a recession and then we end up getting a second wave of inflation? Well, in my opinion, and it's an argument that I've made before, we have a scrunchie of pent-up capable uh, supply right now. Rather than being a stretched thin rubber band, we're a little scrunchie of a rubber band right now where manufacturing can easily expand and be a normal rubber band from where we are now. In other words, companies have a lot of excess supply capabilities on the sidelines. And his own charts argue what I am saying. Supply chains have loosened. Yeah, no kidding. Supply chains are at some of the loosest levels that we have seen since the 2009 recession or the dot-com bubble. That actually, in my opinion, counters his own argument <laughs> that things are bad. Because in my opinion, the biggest fear that we have now is that inflation pops back up. This suggests no. And so does inventories, or so do inventories rising. Because as inventories rise, you get pricing pressures to the downside, which is a deflationary force, a disinflationary force. So I hate to say it, but Mike Wilson has a 41-page, basically FUD piece 
uh, on on the market. And these are his positions. He's underweight tech, underweight discretionaries. He's still old school, January 2022, long healthcare, long staples, and long utilities. Look, I hate to say it, but that was the tactical trade of 2022. The, the best thing you could have done in 2022 would have been to move to cash or go staples. That was the tactical trade. And the opposite of that tactical trade was, uh, uh, well, well, I should say to reiterate that tactical trade, but just the other side of that tactical trade was getting out of discretionary and getting out of tech. Well, if inflation goes away and one of the only reasons we're actually seeing such a terrible uh, a bear market is because the Fed is inducing a recession to stamp out inflation, and if the inflationary concerns actually go away and prove that they're gone, then maybe things actually aren't that bad. But bears are really good at only giving you bad information. Now, don't get me wrong. There are also bulls who only give you good information. And I'm probably a little bit biased to the bull side. I do try my best to provide balanced information, but I have to say, I'm a little bit concerned that we're getting into an environment where there are actually a lot of analysts who are trying to manipulate data to the downside to paint a more bearish picture than is really happening. Now, I actually respect this individual on Twitter, but I have a lot of questions for him, and I hope that he could provide a little bit more answers into what he provided. There's this guy named Macro Elf, who's basically been a bear since about February of 2022. Uh, I followed him a lot when I originally became very bearish in January of 2022 and sold my stocks because I'm like, oh, look, here's another bear, you know, because I felt kind of lonely. Uh, anyway, he posted something the other day called the credit impulse chart. Now, to briefly understand credit impulse, and this is really important because there's, there's a real big concern to this. To understand credit impulse, you have to know that credit impulse is just a fancy way, CI, is saying, hey, how much debt are people taking out? So how much debt, and we'll go ahead and call this new debt, how much new debt are people taking out as a ratio of GDP? So in other words, you're measuring a change, right? If this number goes massively negative, it just means people are taking out less debt as a percentage of GDP. And that could actually be a red flag for the future of earnings for companies, which actually reiterates what Mike Wilson says at Morgan Stanley, that Hey, look, if Morgan Stanley and Mike Wilson are huge perma bears right now, and they're like, hell's about to come ahead of us. And then all of a sudden the macro elf posts this for credit impulse, the blue line representing G5 credit impulse, G5 being like US, China, right? Uh, the big five economies of the world. Well, this is massively concerning because it shows credit impulse going from positive, say about three and a half percent to about negative two and a half percent. This is a massive drawdown in credit impulse. And this looks very, very concerning. And so what my team and I actually did, and, and again, I wanna be very, very clear here. We could be wrong, but we have suspicions about this chart. What we did is first thing we said, Let's try to replicate the data. Let's see where they're getting their data from. And so the first thing we did is we looked at the United States credit impulse charts. 
and we do not see that drop. This chart goes all the way back to 2000. His chart went to about 2014. And yes, we do see some decline, but it's nowhere near what we saw in the pandemic. And when we jump over here, we actually see that his pandemic uh, 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 credit impulse drop is like right there. And we're like, why is there so much distortion in his chart showing such a massive decline in credit impulse, implying basically the world is about to end? Why is there such a difference between his chart and the U.S. credit impulse? And then we're like, okay, well, maybe China's credit impulse as part of the G5 is really bad. And we're like, well, here's China going back to 2004 for the credit impulse chart. And yeah, it goes up and down, but it's nowhere near as low as what we've seen in the past. So how all of a sudden are we getting this massive chart to the downside in credit impulse from a bear? And this is where we thought to ourselves, we have to figure out how he built this data. And again, we could be wrong about how he built this data, but we have a theory even though it's not perfect, we have a theory about how a bear is showing that everything's about to go to hell in the market. And we're a little bit concerned about the theory. Take a look at this. This is his tweet. The tweet here from MacRoth suggests that his global impulse tracker tracks the real pace of economic money creation in inflation-adjusted terms. Now, this right here is a really critical phrase. He says inflation adjusted terms. So what we did is we thought, okay, what if he's taking this ratio right here and he's subtracting nominal inflation from it, which means if credit impulse is like negative 0.25% and throughout the last 20 years, inflation has been say 2%, then everywhere credit impulse is negative 2.5%, it would be negative 2.25%, right? And then you would just see fluctuations like from negative 2.25 to negative 2.75 to maybe positive uh, or, or to negative 1.75, right? You would see minor fluctuations. But what would you do if you subtracted inflation today from this? Well, you'd go a credit impulse of basically negative 0.25 minus inflation of say 7%, you'd be a negative 7.25%. In other words, if you just subtracted inflation from his credit impulse chart, you would basically get credit impulse that looks like that because inflation is so historically high today. So that was our theory. We're like, is he subtracting inflation from a ratio, which you should not do. You, you should not take inflation off of a ratio. If you want to inflation adjust this, you inflation adjust the new debt and the GDP, but you do not inflation adjust a ratio. Inflation adjustments are made to pricing power, not to ratios, okay? So we went with that anyway, though, and we rebuilt his chart uh, going all the way back to the 80s. Uh, I believe that's the chart I have here. Let me double check. Uh, okay, we went back to 2000 because the G5 for China didn't pull back to the 80s. Uh, but we do have other charts going back to the 80s as well. I'll talk about those. So we rebuilt the credit impulse chart. And uh, the gray line that you're about to see is the rebuilt credit impulse chart over the last 22 years if you simply subtract inflation from what credit impulse is doing. So I want you to pay attention 
to the gray line. And our chart's not as pretty as the macro guys, but look at this chart that we rebuilt. You could see on the right side, the gray line plummets because you're pulling inflation off of it. More so than the plummet you saw during the pandemic, more so than the plummet you saw in the recession. And when we rebuilt this going back to the 80s, we also saw a massive drop in the 80s because you're pulling off inflation uh, off of a ratio, which I don't think you should do. So now we, again, we don't know if this individual who's providing this data is doing so, uh, you know, to purposefully mislead people. That's not what we're suggesting. We're just saying we can't rebuild this credit impulse plummet the way he has it. His only goes back to 2013. It ignores the recession. It ignores the inflationary time of the 80s. And we think the way they're achieving this chart is by somehow making some kind of crazy inflation adjustment on the right side of the chart, which we think is totally misleading and inappropriate. Again, maybe, maybe we have rebuilt the charts inappropriately, but we cannot recreate that kind of bearish chart. Because seriously, when we first saw it, we're like, this is terrible. That's horrible. So that's why we wanted to rebuild the data because we're like, that is really a bad leading indicator for markets. But we can't rebuild the data. We're not getting the same bearish result. And so we think what's happening is the data is, whether intentionally or not, being manipulated to paint a more bearish picture of the economy than should actually be painted. Now, moving on to some other reports, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of bad indicators. We I talked about how Morgan Stanley is bearish. I talked about how the uh, uh, the macro elf guy is, is providing very bearish information. We looked at Logitech earnings to just see how bearish things are right now. And things are bad. There's also Barclays warning that, hey, hey, we got to be careful. We're getting a little bit too Goldilocks over here. I'll show it to you. Look, this is, uh, this is uh, the temporary Goldilocks. I believe that's the headline of this. A temporary Goldilocks, a global macro thought piece. And they're basically saying Europe and China are doing better than expected, better than the United States. U.S. data flow has worsened. Retail sales are falling sharply in November, December. Housing starts and industrial production point to a further slowdown. So don't get me wrong. Data is looking bad. The question now is just how bad is it and how much has been priced in? That's the question, right? Now, Barclays, interesting note, actually thinks that the X date or when we'll run out of money for the debt ceiling is actually closer to August. Uh, we, uh, uh, Barclays also says, we think markets will only react a few weeks before the debt ceiling debate. Uh, the soft landing narrative is likely to carry on for a few weeks, but bad data could actually drive the market lower. This is very similar to what Morgan Stanley is saying. So don't get me wrong, I'm probably outnumbered in how many bears there are right now. There are a lot of bearish folks. Here's another one. BNP, what do they say? They say, fundamentally, we do not believe the current Goldilocks flow of information is stable equilibrium. If US data proves more resilient and the labor market remains tight, then inflation will not fall and will remain near the Fed's target without the policy, uh, uh, well, without policy being kept restricted for longer. Something has to give. So they're basically making this argument, look, the economy, yeah, right now we're getting some data that's like, 
bad saying inflation's gonna come down, but if the labor market remains tight, maybe inflation doesn't go down. The thing is, nobody really knows what's going to happen. But I am starting to see a trend where some people who have kind of adopted the bearish mindset are doubling down on being perma bears. That is, even news that's coming out that's good is starting to be interpreted as bad because that's their position. And a lot of people have a really hard time flipping their position. It's really hard to say, oh, things are changing. That's very, very difficult. And for some reason in, in society, we seem to be attracted to people who have the same position all the time. You know, like, never use debt. There's not a single circumstance you could use debt. Or like, never buy a single family home. It's stupid, right? Like, it's very hard for people to make the argument that, wait a minute, there could be exceptions to those rules, right? It's very hard to say, oh, hmm, maybe things actually aren't as bearish as they seem. Because after all, and this is sort of just, just my, my thesis on this, my thought is that yes, we have bad data. And yes, the data is pointing to a substantial slowdown in inflation. But we have to make sure that data continues to come in. Otherwise, the Fed has to stay strong and tighten through a recession, which truly would be bad. Fortunately, so far, leading indicators are suggesting inflation will continue its plummet. Now we just have to prove that it will continue to plummet to the Fed. I highly expect that. But that is the weak bull thesis. The bull thesis falls apart as soon as inflation shoots back up. We could, though. And this is something that I think a lot of bears are not considering. The Fed does not have to destroy the labor market. Think about that for a moment. This is something that a lot of bears are not considering right now. The Fed does not have to kill the labor market. The Fed thinks that the unemployment rate is going to rise to 4.5%. That's what they believe from where we sit now at about 3.5%. They think the unemployment rate is going to get to 4.5% in order for them, or have to get to that level, in order for them to get inflation down. But let me make an extreme example here just to show you how this doesn't have to be true. Let's go extreme. Let's say starting next month, inflation comes in negative, okay? We don't actually think that, but let's just say the month over month data is negative. And you know what? Let's be extreme. The year over year data is negative. And let's say for the next three months, it's all negative and it continues negative thereafter. In other words, comparing to 2022, everything is less expensive. Well, at some point, the Federal Reserve will find that this fall in inflation is consistent and persistent enough that they can reduce rates. And if the unemployment rate has gone up to say 3.7% and job openings have reduced a little bit, but the unemployment rate hasn't gone up to 4.5%, the Fed does not actually have to continue forcing people to lose their jobs in order to get inflation down. Because remember the dual mandate of the Fed. The dual mandate of the Fed is stable prices and max employment. Well, if prices are actually unstable to the downside and jobs are going up, then they're failing at both ends of their mandate. So then they have to cut rates and stabilize the unemployment rate from going up and actually kill this idea and prevent that. This is just an extreme example to prove that the Fed does not have to continue to hawk until unemployment skyrockets. They just have to hawk until inflation is down and stably down. That's it. And then they can U-turn. And remember, 
And the big thing that I think a lot of folks forget is the Fed has an easy out to maintain and restore their credibility. All they have to do is say, hey, look, inflation right now is sitting at about 3%. That's consistent with our 2% average. That's all they have to do through the policy we adopted in 2019 called FATE, flexible average inflation targeting, and then guess what? Game over. All of a sudden people are like, damn, they pulled a rabbit out of the hat that we weren't expecting. And like, I've been screaming about this for quite a while now that they're probably gonna end up pulling out that average argument uh, to stabilize markets and, and ultimately fight off the uh, recessionary dynamics that we're going through. But again, I wanna be very, very clear. My criticisms of some of the bears are not to say they are wrong. I'm, I'm not here to say I could tell you the stock market for sure is not going to fall 20% in March. I just personally think what we're seeing right now is consistent with getting inflation down and things could end up a lot better than has potentially already been priced in. And I solely believe that because of what, in terms of price being priced in, I believe that because what I'm seeing in earnings. Taiwan Semiconductors provides bad news. Guess what? Stock's up like 50% since that bad news. NVIDIA provides terrible news on forecast. Guess what? Stock's up substantially. Uh, Samsung uh, reports like a 69% drop in revenue. Guess what? Stock's up substantially. Logitech, similar thing. Nowhere even close to the bottom we saw last year. Suggesting, in my opinion, that for earnings coming up, especially you've got like Microsoft and Tesla coming up, yeah, the numbers are probably going to be bad, but possibly not as bad as expected. And that's actually quite bullish. So pretty remarkable situation going on in markets. And it's also pretty remarkable that that coupon code expires in 30 days, I'm sorry, in six days on the 30th, uh, and you get lifetime access to all those programs on Building Your Wealth and the course member live stream that we do after the pre-market live stream. Okay. So there we have a lot of information on the Fed uh, and uh, and some of this uh, bearish news. Let's uh, let's take a listen over here to Bloomberg for a moment. Let's see what they're yapping about. Writing about it's about Binance, which I guess is the world of crypto now, and they're mixing collateral and funds of customers, including your kids, Lisa. They're in there somewhere. They're in that that slot somewhere. I think they're into uh, the Roblox but currency. This is the adult pro view on crypto. I want to just draw that to everybody's attention. The real issue is how fall, how 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 far that really uh, will go in terms of the fallout and the kinds of regulation or oversight of some of the collateral for people who are no saying, uh, and and then for people who need to take their money out or want to take <clears throat> yeah. their money out of certain of these uh, platforms. We got a twenty-three thousand print on Bitcoin, which means we can go to John Farrell. He is in London with the always interesting. Callum Pickering. Mr. Farrell. I actually have to start with an apology, Tom, just quickly. I'm taking a lot of heat for this from the last segment. Aluminium. Okay, just yes. aluminium. Yes, I did. I, uh, yes. Not aluminum. I, I, Tom, I, I, I think we did say. it back to front. I think you did the English version, I did the American version. We spent too much time together. Yeah, yeah, TK, yeah, thank sure. you. Yeah, sure. Callum Pickering with me now, senior economist at Berenberg. Callum, I don't want to start with that. I want to start with this. This from BNP Paribas in the last 24 hours. I'll read the quote out for you and I'll get your view on it. Soft landing has been the catchphrase of a still young 23, but we think it will go out the window in the same fashion as transitory inflation did in 2022. That line right there, do you agree? what we just well, read. I think there are risks to this scenario. I think the danger is in markets we start pricing in, I would call it la-la land, which is we have two risks to worry about. There's the huge global energy price shock, which so far actually, at least in Europe and the US, doesn't seem to be playing out quite as aggressively as 
markets might have thought, say, six months ago. But then there's the reaction to that, which is tight financial conditions from central banks. Remember, this energy shock hit tight labor markets and tight product markets coming out of COVID and triggered these second round effects. And so the danger here is that we think- All right, I think we've got enough, honestly, of the FUD, but uh, like, this is basically what we were just reading. It's uh, maybe they're watching our stream and they're like, Kevin's talking about about the bearish reports. Let's put those up as well. Okay, no, I'm just patting myself on the back here. <laughs> uh, we should though address the Binance issue that just popped up. Binance, oh my gosh, Binance for so long, and this isn't to just be fud on Binance, but it's just like, seriously, again, Binance? Uh, Binance, who's lost their auditor, okay? Their auditor bailed. For, for nobody knows why, okay? Well, I mean, I, the company officially says that, well, nobody really trusts our proof of reserves reports anyways, says the auditor. The auditor's like, so we're just gonna stop auditing Binance. Auditor for Binance disappears. What do we find out today? Oh my gosh. Apparently, Binance has acknowledged that they keep collateral for some of the tokens they issue in the same damn wallet as customer funds. Oh, okay, so let me explain that because that's a little bit tricky to, to envision. So let's hop on over here and just picture this for a moment, okay? Let's say you have a bucket right here and this is customer money, okay? So that's customer money right here. And there's $100 of customer money right here. And now let's say you print a BNB uh, coin, okay? You print the BNB coin or, or whatever you print, and you print a hundred bucks of BNB coin, and you put I don't know twenty bucks in there of uh, of collateral, right? Well, obviously, if you've printed a hundred dollars of Binance token, and you only have twenty actual U.S. dollars in it, this is what's known as being under collateralized. You do not have enough money to actually provide a dollar for every Binance token that you've created. Now keep in mind, this is just an example, okay? I'm just making an example here. However, if you now just happen to put both of this money in the same bucket, okay? And you kind of just erase these other little buckets you have here, and you just happen to have customer money in the same bucket as where the Binance token is that you've created or the other tokens you've created, well, how much money do you have in this bucket now? Well, you actually have $100 of the Binance token and how much collateral do you technically have for that Binance token? Well, technically you have $100 of customer funds and the $20 of collateral you put in. So you now have $120, which actually means rather than being under collateralized, you are technically over collateralized and you technically have $1 backing for every $1 you have issued for every single token. So they are technically speaking correct in saying, yeah, assets are backed one-to-one. -one. But now the jig is up. Now, fortunately, the crypto market is rising because in my opinion, otherwise this would lead to a bank run at Binance. Binance could be getting really lucky here in that they skirted by this market crash, but this is pretty shady because really what's being acknowledged by Binance, Binance admitted to this, 
they admitted to having customer funds in the same bucket as collateral for their tokens. This comes after all of the other crazy and shady things that have gone on with Binance. Now, don't get me wrong. So far, Binance has survived. Binance has been that one company that's being treated as the lender of last resort. As soon as I made a video, and I'm not patting myself on the back, other people were talking about it too, but as soon as videos were made about their Seifu fund, right, their reserves fund, their insurance fund being underfunded, they filled it back up, moved some money around. They suggest that they're capable of buying out other crypto brokerages and they make offers, but so far they haven't closed any deals yet. But they're sending this signal of strength. In my opinion, it's kind of like the emperor wears no clothes a little bit where they're sending this signal of strength. We'll buy you, we'll buy you, we'll buy you. And when push comes to shove, they don't actually buy because they might not actually have the money, which is very similar to that CNBC interview we saw, which all the crypto fans and Binance fans who don't want to hear that their Binance token could be at risk are like, la, 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 don't want to hear it. The CNBC interview was rigged. In the CNBC interview, when... The, uh, when CZ, the owner of Binance, was asked, hey man, could you cover $2 billion of demand right now? He says, we'll let the attorneys answer that. Totally ISIS, multiple questions about what's going on with reserves and collateral they actually have. All he says is money is backed one-to-one, -one. but now they're acknowledging that they mistakenly kept collateral of some of their tokens in the same wallet as exchange customer funds. This is a supposedly a cold wallet, but this particular wallet represents uh, a wallet that holds reserves for almost half of the 94 tokens that Binance issues. And they were all stored in a single wallet known as Binance 8. Now, Binance again, they say customer assets and B tokens are backed one-to-one -one by locked reserves. But that doesn't work if those locked reserves are actually the customers. No segregation all of a sudden makes it very difficult to actually verify how much does Binance actually have in reserves. And I hate to say it, but to the extent that the Binance token remains, you know, elevated to some level, in theory, when Binance mints more Binance token, they're basically printing money like the Federal Reserve. And they're able to do that as long as people believe that money is backed one-to-one. -one. It's kind of like the Federal Reserve. They print money, and even though we had a lot of inflation here recently, we haven't had a groundbreaking like Weimar Republic style of inflation. Don't get me wrong. There are definitely issues with fiat currency and the, and the, the Federal uh, Reserve. But people in the world still have enough trust in the U.S. dollar to not completely destroy it, yet at least. There has been no currency that has survived in the history of currencies. But going back again to this issue with Binance, the fact that the same bucket that holds that customer collateral could be that same bucket that actually holds that one-to-one -one backing is pretty nerve-wrecking for folks, especially since this is thought to have been that one company that was, um, uh, dare I say, legit, <laughs> okay? More and more issues now coming up here. So it's something uh, to pay attention to. Now, uh, Binance did come out and they did say that, look, 
Custor, all assets held on the exchange have been and continue to be backed one-to-one. -one. We don't know if they're playing that one-to-one -one logic like I just explained in the video here. But remember, there is no FDIC insurance at Binance. There is no SIPC insurance. CZ and Binance are under, the, uh, under multiple investigations with the Department of Justice and multiple other institutions throughout the world. It's scary. At the same time, they mint billions of dollars of their own Binance, Ether, USDC, Tether, you name it. And again, it's all supposed to be backed one-to-one, -one, but all of a sudden, we find out that they're not. Uh, or, or at least that customer assets are sitting in the same spot. Apparently, uh, you've got, it was about 40 tokens, so roughly half of the tokens uh, that were sitting in this. Let's see if we have some more information here. Uh, oh, Binance now argues that assets are, quote, sufficiently backed in the event of a redemption request. Okay, so now all of a sudden it looks like on one hand they're saying assets are backed one-to-one, -one, and now they're changing it to saying, no, 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 assets are actually sufficiently backed. Oh, man. Obviously, after the whole FTX disaster, there's been a lot of scrutiny here. Uh, let's see. Binance has issued more than $539 million in total of its 41B tokens that have Binance 8 as a collateral wallet, according to calculations by Bloomberg and based on Binance data from January 20th. Whilst the wallet itself holds more than $1.8 billion in related assets, overall, Binance 8 contains more than $16.5 billion in various crypto tokens beyond those linked to B tokens. That's that over-collateralization. That means some B tokens in the wallet have far more collateral than would be necessary. For example, Binance 8 had a, a, a reserve of almost 22,700% for origin token OGN on Monday. Binance previously acknowledged historical issues with insufficient backing for B tokens, uh, blah, blah, blah. And basically now uh, they're saying this has been solved by putting customer funds into the same bucket. So this is important to clarify. I'll clarify it one last time and then we'll move on. But it's important to note that let's just draw it again here just to make it as, as or attempt to make it as clearly as clear as possible. If you have just one dollar of one of the tokens, right? And, and let's just call it the MK token, okay? You have $1 of collateral backing the MK token. Uh, and I've issued, uh, oh, I don't know. I've issued maybe $10 of the MK token. Technically, I'm under collateralized, right? But if now I have customer assets of, oh, I don't know, a million dollars sitting in an account, and those are customer assets, and I put them in the same bucket. Well, all of a sudden it looks like I have $100,000, or, or I should say 100,000X the backing needed to handle uh, collateral requirements on token MK, right? It looks like I have 100,000 times the collateral requirement. And that was actually how they ended up kind of getting exposed on this issue is because you had crypto firms looking at this going, dude, why do you have so much collateral for some of these individual tokens? Ah, because it's the same collateral being used, not just for those individual tokens, but also for many other tokens and customer funds because it's all been commingled into the same bucket. Now, when you look at the entire bucket in aggregate, you're actually substantially under collateralized. And this is why they're shifting their tone a little bit saying, well, 
yeah, on an individual basis, MK is backed one-to-one -one, or customer assets are backed one-to-one. -one. But if everyone redeemed at the same time, well, we're quote, sufficiently collateralized. I don't know. Look, between you, me, and the fence post here, I wouldn't have any of my money on exchange. I feel like that's that's a simple thing that folks in crypto should understand at this point, that probably in a recession is the most dangerous time to actually stake your money. Takes treasury bills at 4% or go like, you know, find a platform that offers you 3.75% or, or 4% backed by FDIC or SIPC insurance at this point. Most of them actually FDIC insured. There are plenty of them. Uh, I'm not gonna even mention a name because you could just Google it and there are plenty of them and you could pick your own. Just saying, big risks over here. Yikes. So that was a little bit of a earth shattering bit of news this morning. Oh well, let's hop on over to Bloomberg for a moment and see what they're yapping about. In financial markets, and it would be wonderful if that were really the truth. If we weren't just on the leading edge of the hit that we're going to have in profits. Um, and of course, how markets traded last year are not anticipating this to be, you know, some kind of profit nirvana. We don't have 20% declines, uh, you know, of out some- <laughs> yeah, comment here, no wonder Binance is not approved in New York. <sighs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, it, it's, I understand this argument that, well, look, you know, maybe Binance and FTX and, you know, FTX obviously being a massive fraud, Maybe some of these companies were or, uh, did learn from the banks, but look at the amount of regulation banks are under now and the amount of insurance banks have and the amount of stress tests and actual audits they undergo. There's no audit for Binance. You don't even know who owns Binance. It's like in the Cayman Islands, you know? It's like everything is, is, is unknown. It's a, just a total unknown. You're basically just taking somebody's word that it's okay. I mean, even... House hack, my real estate startup, had to undergo an SEC audit. Uh, well, it's it's an audit that's done by a big four firm that ends up getting sent to the SEC and the SEC re reviews it to make sure it, it passes their, their, their smell test. But anyway, you go through an insane amount of auditing when, when you're subject to legal regulation. And that's actually supposed to be a good thing. Like for example, people in house hack need to know that the money we say we have, we have. And, and so they get an audit showing that, right? That's important, that that creates trust. Whereas when you don't have an audit at Binance, somebody's like, oh, we're good. That's a problem. Dividend growers uh, in pharmaceutical shares uh, that have low cyclicality. I think this very near term period, especially uh, before we see uh, the January employment report and we probably see the Fed deliver a hawkish 25, uh, is probably going to be a period where we're going to have to settle back a bit. Uh, and again, that does not tell us to time the market and be all out of equities. Uh, but we're okay with a short covering rally and low quality shares and just missing that for the near term. Stephen, how much would you lean into oil majors in particular because of that dividend story, that share buyback story, and not necessarily a call on commodity prices? It's a full weighting despite a, a poor cyclical backdrop. I and mean, we think that a lot of industrial and materials companies uh, are going to see um, earnings downward revisions, are going to see weaker activity this year. I would say, though, uh, that petroleum generally um, is pretty well positioned for, uh, for a weak period for the world economy. Um, the downside may be $70 in the Brent price uh, in what will be a 
probably a mild global recession or something that we might call that. Uh, literally, the U.S. economy is going to have some significant job losses. We don't believe that you have sales declines without real job declines. We're not just talking about job openings. But even with that said, OPEC has cut production early. Supply sources around the world are recovering slowly. So I think this is not going to be a particularly bad cycle for energy. Meanwhile, you mentioned the Fed, and we All have right, we're going to go ahead and pull off this. Uh, I'd like to cover something new here. I, I, I don't. <clears throat> All right, this this is this is a little bit of a touchy one. We're going to talk about the good old Vax just for a brief a moment, because originally when the Vax came out, everybody's like, you got to have the Vax, otherwise, you know, you're you're an anti-Vax or whatever. And there are a few things that are incredible that's going on. First of all, there's this uh, video uh, that's that's circulating on uh, on Twitter. I like this. Uh, the reason I liked it is just so you could go into my Twitter history and see what I like as sort of extra context. But it's basically the Pfizer CEO getting confronted by some reporters, and he's just super silent. Now, that doesn't actually mean anything in itself, but it does reiterate this narrative of, wait a minute, what's going on with Big Pharma? And are they rigging data to potentially mislead people about COVID boosters and COVID vaccines? And this is a big problem because it's, well, for them, extremely profitable, but for us, it's our health. And one of the things that's wild is if you look at the continent of Africa, it is the least vaccinated continent that exists. And guess what? They're not having a COVID crisis. It's weird, but then again, hey, you know what? Maybe it's just an outlier. But what is not an outlier is what the Wall Street Journal editorial board just put together. Now, look, mainstream media, you always want to have a little bit of a skepticism, right? But let's put it this way. The Wall Street Journal editorial board, you know, probably has some reason to be uh, incentivized by big pharma, right? I mean, at least that's what we might assume, right? Think about it. Wall Street Journal, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, massive companies on Wall Street, right? Well, what we've got is a piece that goes completely counter to that idea. And this is probably one of the most damning pieces I have seen by the Wall Street Journal. And it was put together by and uh, not the editorial board, but a board member of the editorial board. So just one of the people from the editorial board. But it was pretty remarkable. So the Wall Street Journal and a member of their editorial board is going out of the way to say the deceptive campaign for bivalent COVID boosters. Now, I'm just going to read you some of the big pieces here, okay? So I went through this. And I'm just giving you the bottom line here. The message sponsored, uh, sponsored by the Department of Health and Human Services claims that updated bivalent vaccines will improve your protection. However, the Wall Street Journal suggests, that, or at least this member of the editorial board, suggests that this is deceptive advertising. Public health's establishment praise for the bivalent shots shouldn't come as a surprise, though, because federal agencies took the unprecedented step of ordering vaccine makers to produce these vaccines and recommending these vaccines and boosters without data supporting their safety or efficacy. And this is where they get into some arguments. The idea of updating mRNA COVID shots every season originally held promise. One advantage of mRNA technology is that manufacturers can tweak the genetic sequence and rapidly produce new vaccines targeting new variants. That's what we've been told since November of 2020. Hey, these vaccines, you can update them. They're great. 
As a result, now we have new vaccines targeting BA4 and BA5 Omicron, uh, as well as the original uh, uh, Wuhan strain. But three problems have come up, they say. First, the virus is evolving faster than vaccines can be updated. Second, viruses are, uh, the, the vaccines are hardwired into our immune system. This has to do with imprinting. We'll explain that in a moment. And the actual benefit of the vaccines uh, or the boosters is waning rapidly, often within a few months. Now, this is interesting because two studies have come out this month showing that the, uh, basically the, the bivalent boosters didn't actually do much more than the original boosters to help fight COVID. Now, what's interesting about that is uh, there's this argument that there's immune imprinting happening that's making it harder for these vaccines to actually respond to, uh, uh, to these new variants. In fact, Look at this study, and I'm going to try my best to explain this. I'm no scientist or doctor here, but look at this slide for a moment. In one study, antibody levels after the bivalent boosters were 11 times as high against the Wuhan variant as against BA5. So let me try to explain imprinting for a moment. So the idea of imprinting is that your body, let's say this is your body right here, gets injected with a vaccine that sees a virus that looks like this right here. The spike protein is generally what's being modified. So that way your body can identify that as an intruder and antibodies attack them. Well, let's say the blue thing here is the Wuhan virus, right? That's what you first saw. Your body gets really good against defending against the Wuhan virus. Well, now you inject it with, hey, here's the other one. Here's the red one called, uh, you know, BA5. We'll call that one B. And let's say your body creates a ton of antibodies for the Wuhan virus, the blue, and then you get injected with the, the BA5 or BA4 vaccine variant, and your body does this. It adds one antibody for BA4 or 5, and then it adds a bunch more Wuhan virus antibodies. In other words, your body is basically just reiterating its protection against the original strain and not the new variant. And this is like this biological phenomenon, or maybe it's not a phenomenon because it's studied, but, but then again, a lot of things in biology are still theories. Uh, and, and this imprinting phenomenon put in a technical phrase, and I pulled this up. I pulled up uh, immune imprinting in the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine design. I pulled this up, uh, one of this, the studies I could find see the details here, just kind of glossing along a little bit to go a little faster here. But immune printing is a phenomenon whereby initial exposure to one virus strain effectively primes the memory of your body and limits the development of other antibodies or new minor strains. And this is basically suggesting that these new modified vaccines are actually substantially less efficacious against future variants than the original variant. And despite this, despite this finding by multiple studies, which the Wall Street Journal is highlighting, listen to this. The studies and the findings contradict what Pfizer and Moderna are asserting. So in other words, the studies are saying the new stuff ain't working. Pfizer and Moderna are like, what are you talking about? It's four to six times as, as effective as the original booster. But the Wall Street Journal says these claims are misleading because neither vaccine maker has actually conducted a randomized trial. 
And when I read this, I'm like, wait, what? Like, you have to do randomized trials to tell us something is safe. And they're not conducting those. Now I'm taking the Wall Street Journal's word for that. Instead, the Wall Street Journal here says, the companies, Pfizer and Moderna, tested the original boosters last winter, long before the BA5 and BA4 surge, four to six months after trial participants had received their third shot. The bivalence, by contrast, uh, began to surge nine and a half to 11, let me go to it, nine and a half to 11 months after recipients received their third dose. A longer interval suggests the shots would increase antibody levels more to a recent uh, injection. In, in other words, I'm going to try to explain that really quickly. The old studies they were doing uh, to show like sort of a contrast only had like a four-month interval. And they compared that four-month interval to shots given nine months later, which basically says, look, of course, if you've waited longer to get another shot, you're going to see a larger boost in antibodies than if you've recently had one, right? Roughly. The longer interval between shots would increase the antibody boost. The vaccine makers designed their studies to get the results they wanted. This is like scary. I mean, I, I get it because they're a for-profit institution, right? But I don't want to think that the vaccine makers who are injecting stuff into our bodies are basically rigging the studies. Now, I, I get it. A lot of you may be like, oh, duh, Kevin, wake up. But like, do we have to be that cynical throughout our lives? And apparently the answer is yeah. Yeah, this is scary. Well, I'm going to read that again. The vaccine makers designed their studies to get the results they wanted. Public health authorities didn't raise an eyebrow, but why would they? They have a vested interest in promoting bivalence. The FDA ordered the vaccine makers in June to update the boosters against BA4 and 5 and rushed in late August to authorize the bivalent boosters before clinical data were available. The CDC recommended bivalence for all adults without evidence that they were actually effective. This is insane. In other words, the CDC in August, in late August is like, quick, print them, we'll approve them, just make them and we'll approve them. But the results for the, uh, uh, the only small randomized studies that they've actually conducted wouldn't actually be available until over a month, a month later. But public health authorities didn't want to wait. And now we know why. Because when the actual studies came out after the CDC recommended them, the study showed that bivalents were only 22 to 43% effective against BA5 at their peak as antibodies waned as new variants took over later in the fall and then their protection against variants basically dropped to zero. So in other words, you're taking these boosters and you're maybe really only getting like one to two months of benefits because of immune imprinting. The CDC is lying to us saying they're safe and effective when the studies haven't even come out to show they're safe and effective. Okay, like my understanding of safe and effective was A, safe, but let's put that on the table for a moment because we could talk myocarditis all day long. But let's just stick on number two, effective. My understanding of an effective vaccine is a vaccine that's actually like 55 plus percent effective. And that's already pretty paltry. But my understanding of safe, effective, safe and effective was 55 to 70% effective. <clears throat> At their peak, the studies show these bivalent vaccines are only 22 to 43% effective. Yet the CDC is telling us, no, they're safe and effective. 
by what? Another CDC study in December reported seniors who received the bivalence were 84% less likely to be hospitalized than the unvaccinated and 73% less likely than those who had received two or more boosters of the original vaccine. But neither study controlled for important factors. Number one, the small minority of people who get the bivalence were probably also more likely than those who hadn't to follow other COVID precautions or seek out treatments like Paxlovid. So in other words, it, maybe you got COVID, but you have access to Paxlovid, or maybe you're still socially distancing or you're, you know, whatever to try to prevent yourself. Maybe, maybe you're healthier. Maybe you're trying to, whatever. The point is no controls in the study actually showing a higher rate of efficacy. This is, why is the Wall Street Journal having to expose this? Like the CDC should be the organization that's like, hey guys, we, we got to step up like the quality of research we're doing here. It's not happening. It's in, this is embarrassing for the CDC. And again, I know many people are just rolling their eyes right now. Like, Kevin, we knew this two years ago. I, I get it, okay? This just came out from the Wall Street Journal, though, and we are covering it to bring light to it to those who still have not seen that light. A study found that, uh, look at this, a study found that unvaccinated individuals were more likely to get into car accidents, but that doesn't mean that car accidents prevent car crashes or that vaccines prevent car accidents. There's a growing consensus that we need better vaccines and treatments to protect those still at risk, but we also need honest public health leaders. Oh, what a mic drop. What a freaking mic drop. That's intense. This is, and look, y'all know me as Mr. In the Middle. It's not because I don't want to take an opinion. It's because I believe that uh, most of us want neutral information, stuff that isn't biased to one side or another. And I think that 80% of us can agree that after what we just saw, the CDC sucks ass. Like, that's a pisser, man. That is a pisser. I think 80% of us agree and go, yeah, man, that doesn't look too good. Maybe, maybe there's an explanation, but that doesn't look too good. <laughs> okay. I think 80 plus percent of us can agree. I mean, maybe even 100% of us agree. Uh, but uh, wow. Damning, bad, and disgusting. Not good. Let's jump on back to Bloomberg here and see what's going on here. Uh, let's also briefly take a quick look at the pre-market here. We're about 40 minutes to the opening bell. We've got Dow futures down four tenths of a percent. S&P futures down uh, 0.43. NASDAQ down 0.63. You've got the 10-year stable at about 3.51%. You've got Tesla down about 1.65%. Bitcoin actually turning negative. Interesting, negative by about a quarter of a percent. It was about positive when the S&P was about uh, negative a quarter. Uh, the Bitcoin was uh, was positive. All right, let's take a listen in here to Bloomberg Intelligence for a moment. Processing large amount of data on the edge. Well, that's with respect to software and hardware uh, stories, but the technology of the Elon Musk's of the world will be on full display on Wednesday. What are you expecting to see as the real world kind of comes to the fore, the revenge of the real economy that we've been talking about for so long? Yeah, look, I think even for autonomous cars, if those have to become a reality, and there are a lot of doubters, and it will be, you know, in a phased approach, but you can see the progress where we are going with this in in terms of uh, just 
making that car a lot more smarter. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where you're, you're seeing a lot of custom chips. It can process real-time data. That's what I mean by processing at the edge. And a lot of companies have talked mm -hmm. about it. The question is, how do you integrate it into a product that is right. used for a good purpose? I don't, want, than plagiarism. I don't want to embarrass you here with a private company, which I'm sure you're not up to speed on, but you are up to speed on Twitter. It's fabric, it's culture rather, in the fabric of San Francisco. Lisa Mateo says they don't pay their rent, et cetera. Where is, I mean, there's no conference call, but where is Elon Musk two or three conference calls from now, say Labor Day of this year? Where is Twitter? Well, I think Twitter right now is bleeding revenue. We saw, you know, they lost almost 40% of their phone. Yeah, revenue. You know, and can, that could be a it. good thing for the other digital ad companies that are also struggling. So right now we are going through that phase where ad <clears throat> pricing is down, and, and it's down a lot. And there is no hope because advertisers are pulling back. And you have Apple's privacy changes. That's hurting ad pricing. Well, guess what? Twitter is all brand ads. They have been bleeding market share, so that could be so a positive he, he for some. He's getting very good. He didn't answer my question. Where is where is Elon Musk Labor Day with Twitter? Well, I, I think nobody knows. Twitter right? needs uh, somebody else to run the company. I don't know who that will be. Uh, he has to find somebody. He just can't manage both, and we are seeing that in the results so far. We're talking about a host uh, of different uh, tech. Companies. I don't know, man. We'll see. The results come out tomorrow, man. I I, I don't know. You want to poop on Elon just yet? Uh, there are some comments. Uh, actually, there's just one comment, but I, I respect you for being here. All of you, seriously, like huge thank you for being here. Uh, I, um, you know, I, I pretty much work all day long to, to try to put together as much content as I can for everyone. Uh, so I appreciate you being here and, uh, and, and supporting the channel. Uh, one of you has asked if I can link the Wall Street Journal article. You're actually streaming from Twitch and absolutely. Uh, the easiest way for me to give you that link is actually for you to either search it or just go to my Twitter. Okay, so you could go to my Twitter profile, uh, which is just Real Meet Kevin on Twitter. I don't think you even have to be logged in to do it. Go to likes. Keep in mind, this doesn't necessarily mean I, I, I like what's going on. Just I'm trying to put a little history here for you or, or some interesting things for you to see. I, I just liked it, so it's the first like there. Uh, you know, and then I, I like some other stuff here. Uh, well, you know, whatever. Oh, like, oh my gosh, this was the best. This was the best. Okay, this is probably by far the funniest thing I've seen media pull off. This is a photo by Vice, and it is a bullet hole with a bullet uh, that still has its casing, and it says here, a high-caliber bullet poked at one of the gates outside someone's house here. So the, the caption that's going along with this on, on Twitter is that some reporter wanted to make such a dramatic post that what they did is they took a bullet hole where a bullet had already gone through and then they took an unfired bullet and stuck it in the hole for a good clickbait photo. Uh, quick understanding of how bullets work Here's an example of one, okay? This little part right here has the gunpowder that just shoots the projectile, which is just the little tiny bit at the front, which is usually copper, a shell that is copper, and inside of it is usually lead, okay? So you have a little tiny, think of it as like a lead ball at the top, and the casing just holds the gunpowder that propels this part, 
okay? It's not like you got a gas chamber in your gun unless you got an auto shoddy or something, you know? So when, when you look at this picture, it's important to realize this copper, likely copper tip with lead on the inside, first of all, has no deformity, which indicates it has not been, it has not hit anything. And it is still attached to its gunpowder filled shell casing, which means it has never flown in the air, which means this is just a straight up disgusting example of unfortunately mainstream media trying to mislead people. Damn. <laughs> anyway, let's go back to uh, this. You know, uh, previously, some nolent inflationary environment adjust to something we that's a little bit know, more volatile. Because uh, you know, I'm going to say this again. And this goes. Do we have any Fed speakers today? Are we in quiet it's period? It's quiet phone? period ahead Thank of the God Fed meeting. That. Well, it's going to be there all we week. So <clears throat> maybe we can have that all of 2023. But the point is, is that that they're <laughs> flying blind. They're flying original. And as you know, Drew Mattis said today with MetLife, the idea here that we're coming out of a pandemic is this uncertainty that we're living with. No and question about that. We are readjusting to a new normal, but then it will be yet another new normal by next year, right? I mean, what, what do you, does this mean? You know, two days now, this Pharaoh in London thing, it sort of works, you know. You know he's <laughs> over there. He's bringing us on the ground research. Of on the ground research and, you know. Fulham. I think he'll be here, he'll be here in a, a moment with a nine o'clock show and I'll be on radio with Paul Sweeney. Stay with us, futures deteriorate. I will not stay with you. Under-day moving averages are still in play as a resistance zone. We view these levels as cushions and not precise points. So we think that with resistance in line, with short-term overbought conditions having become widespread last week, and with still the dominant downtrend, that there is a lot of risk here. And, and we continue to watch for just the broader market, including the NASDAQ 100 names. We're watching the VIX, the volatility index, as it pertains to its 50-day moving average. If we see the 50-day cleared, that's at 2150 right now. I think we're maybe a point, point and a half away from that. A breakout above the 50-day has been associated with sort of volatility events and downdrafts in the major indices. So that's something that would be a bit of a risk metric to watch. Yep, the VIX, we talked about it. Okay, uh, China. Capitulation. Can reopen. What about the energy complex, commodities in general? Does oil look higher? Oil does look higher. We actually have an open recommendation in crude oil, and uh, we do think that we'll see a breakout above some resistance, which is essentially in line around $82 per barrel. The momentum has shifted there on an intermediate term basis. So we are bullish crude oil here. And yet we do think that it's Ew. in a longer term trading range now, having lost some long term upside momentum. And that's starting to manifest itself as well in the energy sector, or the, the stocks that represent the space. Uh, so we don't think this is the banner year for energy that it was uh, the last two yeah. years. We think it'll sort of fall down in the ranks on the sector front. But for now, we are bullish. We are trying to just take advantage of where there is talk the book talk the book okay so we've got to talk about retail investors now and what the heck is going on with retail and positioning and we happen to have a report on just that from banditry that's going to provide us some incredible insights on what's going on with retail keep in mind this comes on the back of already amd getting downgraded and logitech numbers not that great. Almost every segment of this computing industry is plummeting. You're down about 20%. However, chip stocks and peripheral stocks actually off of their lows, probably because the stock market has once again overpriced fear. Anytime you have uncertainty and then you get reality, 
Oftentimes, stocks actually go up when reality comes out. Not always, especially when it's unexpectedly to the negative side, but usually when people are really, really fearful about things, it tends not to be as bad as expected. So what does VandaTrack have to tell us today? Well, let's find out. The latter stages of an equity bear market or the early stages of a pain trade rally. Either way, US markets last week exhibited wild and at times inexplicable swings. In this week's positioning update, we'll take a look at how investors are positioned ahead of peak earnings. Upcoming catalysts that we are watching. Number one, as we enter peak earnings season, the focus equity investors for equity investors has shifted towards gauging the size and timing of the forthcoming US recession. This is true. We have seen a substantial shift away from, uh, for example, monitoring what the Federal Reserve is going to do when it comes to rates or what's going on with inflation. Now everybody just cares about earnings per share, which is frequently deemed to be the second half of, of the cycle. Now, what's really remarkable here is that if we do just, for example, take a quick little peeky deeky over here at, uh, well, there we, okay, uh, at this, what we find is that we actually have a now 42% probability that interest rates are not going to lift off at all from 4.25. That so much bad data has come out that the Fed's not even going to be able to forget 5%, forget 4.75. They can't even get it up off 4.25. Imagine that. Fed can't get it up. I don't think Jay Powell is going to be too happy about that characterization. Anyway, so uh, here's some catalysts. Widely anticipated Q4 results for Microsoft today, Tesla Wednesday, Chevron and healthcare names also. But uh, oh, do keep in mind, I hope to stream Microsoft at the closing bell today, though I might have to unless that live stream afterwards if you do come. And keep in mind, January 30th, mark your calendar for that as a catalyst for the expiration of the coupon code, which comes just a day before the employment cost index report, something the Fed's going to watch pretty clearly. Next fortnight, okay, next 20 days here, we will see U.S. equities entering peak earnings season with buybacks not in play until the first half of February. Now, that's actually a big deal because when you get companies in a blackout period, it means they can't buy or sell stocks. And if their stocks are potentially deemed low based on the earnings they put together, the company can't actually go buy the dip before the rip because they're in a blackout period which means we're really not going to see companies be able to buy back stocks if they are so inclined until on average about mid-February. So that actually potentially means that we're in a period of low buying pressure right now, which is kind of remarkable because stocks have kind of been trending up. So imagine if you got buyback buying pressure as well on top of that. Interesting to note. When looking at where investors are hedged for bad news on the earnings front, we see the biggest puts taken out across industrials and staples in recent weeks. This is the uh, call to put ratio here. And when it's negative, it means there are more puts. And right now it looks like the biggest puts, and this is actually surprising to me, are on industrials and staples. Now staples and utilities, keep in mind, have done very well in 2022. And those are actually the ones with the biggest amount of puts on them right now relative to call options. Tech, obviously, also substantially more puts than calls. Some folks are suggesting that's why we're potentially seeing a little bit of a squeeze uh, led by tech. Uh, however, other sectors actually have more shorts against them. CarMax, Nike, McDonald's. McDonald's, by the way, has done very well year over year as a stock. Financially, though, and fundamentally, not actually that good. And I will say, Red Robin 
as just sort of a comparison to McDonald's, does not really franchise, I don't think it franchises its restaurants at all, and they're losing money hand over fist. I was at a Red Robin yesterday, and I hate to say it because I used to work at Red Robin like 16 years ago. Uh, it was not good. They, first of all, the restaurant was like nearly empty, uh, barely people coming in around dinner time, uh, and on top of that, I think because so few people were there, you actually saw them providing less quality food, like old oils for grease, you know, for mozzarella sticks or french fries. And I'm like, what are you doing? That's like the staple here. You should have fresh french fries. Uh, and so um, kind of disappointing, but you see that kind of stuff going into a recession. You see restaurants start seeing numbers go red and then they start cutting corners and then numbers go even more red. But anyway, CarMax, Nike, McDonald's, Tesla, Apple seeing big hedges put on, clearly fears around the U.S. consumer. Uh, this is where we're seeing the top hedges in S&P companies. Big ones again here. CarMax, Microchip, uh, we got Nike, McDonald's, Devon, Kraft, uh, Newmont, Tesla, Kinder Morgan. Ooh, big Tesla shorts here. That'll be interesting. Advanced Auto Parts, Apple, Halliburton. Halliburton. Releases so far confirm that discretionary investors are broadly underweight U.S. equities. Yep. That's true. A lot of money be sitting on the sidelines. Even Goldman told us that last week. A lot of money waiting to be deployed on the sidelines, waiting for proof that, you know, the pain is over and it's time to go rally. <coughs> Excuse me. Firms with strong earnings seeing the highest excess returns since the second quarter of 2019, pointing to light equity positioning. Okay, in English, when stonks do good, they go up real fast implying a lot of money, again, sitting on the sidelines. If earnings hold up in the coming weeks, we may see equity bears shift their focus to debt ceiling <laughs> Okay, this is actually the most hilarious line. Shout out to the, the writers at Vandatrack. This is probably the most hilarious line I've ever seen somebody say uh, about bears. Basically, as soon as the last remaining holdout for bears to say everybody should be bearish goes away, aka if earnings aren't that bad, they'll have to find something else to bitch about. And they'll just complain about the debt ceiling. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, however, overall, S&P 500 performance has been mixed ahead of uh, previous uh, major government shutdowns. And, and obviously, we, we, we don't actually expect anything to happen with a government shutdown. Run up to prior government shutdowns, show mixed, uh, mixed S&P uh, 500 performance, clearly a flight to safety in bonds. Fine. Who's been behind the selling of late? Relatively lackluster retail buying and mutual fund outflows explain soggy markets. Now, this is interesting. Mutual fund outflows basically suggesting, hey, look, a lot of people do this, and I saw this with my, I hate to say it, but I saw this with family members in 2009. At the bottom of the market, they're taking their money out of mutual funds because they're like, man, my mutual fund manager sucks. I'm taking my money out. And they literally withdraw, redeeming their money at the freaking bottom. All right, what else? One of our two conditions for a bottom in U.S. equities is a capitulation in defensives. Well, we haven't seen that yet. Although there were some signs of this last week, really. Cyclicals have accounted for the lion's share of selling. Okay, interesting. So so defensives would be like healthcare, real estate. Cyclicals could be things like autos, like Ford, GM, right? Interesting. So not actually seeing that defensives capitulation, they're saying, uh, just yet. But you are seeing shorts start loading up on some of these. 
The other condition for an equity market bottom is clear retail capitulation. That has not happened yet. We have not quite seen fire sales in the mar that marked the end of the Q4 2018 sell-off. This would also usually align with a volatility spike, a VIX spike. Uh, this is clearly not the same retail investor that we saw in 2020 or 2021. On the surface, an uptick in retail buying over the past week may point to a renewed animal spirits amongst investors of this cohort, but retail investors always tend to buy big ahead of earning seasons. Interesting. However, purchases this month have been relatively light for this time of year. Ah, because usually you do see a lot of retail purchases in January after tax loss harvesting in December. This kind of implies a lot of people waiting on the sidelines for uh, for potential uh, for us to get through earnings. And again, if those earnings, if these earnings come out good, or, or at least better than expected, it, it could it could kill some of the bear thesis. Anyway, retail typically buys ahead of earnings, but it's been lackluster this year. There you go. You can see the chart right here, pretty dang low. Still, retail, other retail parts of the market have indeed been capitulating with mutual funds seeing uh, their usual end-of-year outflows. That being said, there could be a lot more pain to come if these funds see a full reversal of cumulative inflows. In other words, a lack of money coming in. Mutual funds likely to be behind recent selling. We talked about that already. Okay. Mutual fund inflows since Jan 2021 still positive. Risk of further unwind, though, because of recession fears. That could create some more selling pressure. When it comes to rebalancing, our models do not point to a massive selling of equities in the next few weeks. Fine. Watch out for commodities uh, traders in the coming seasons, or sessions rather. Okay, what else do we have here? Overall, the sellers are becoming fewer and fewer. We're potentially entering the latter stages of the bear market. The window for a pain trade rally in stocks will be open if U.S. earnings positively surprised. Pain trade rally would be like, hey, things have been so bad, but they're just not as bad as we thought. Equity bulls look to be returning, given that a Fed pivot looks to be in sight. Whilst investors seem to be chasing the low-hanging fruit of positive macro surprises in Europe and Asia, it may only be a matter of time before sentiment spills over to the underweight U.S. equity markets. This is something we actually talked about earlier, that it seems like uh, well, first of all, we've seen uh, the entire world stock market up 19%, whereas the U.S. is just up about 5% since October. So you've seen more bearishness in the U.S. than in Europe and Asia specifically, uh, but also the rest of the world. This is why you have a lot of analysts right now talking up, oh, it's emerging markets, that's where it's at. Whereas I actually have a little bit of a belief that you could look at American companies that have a lot of international exposure, like what I consider pricing power style stocks, Taiwan Semiconductors, uh, you've got Tesla, you've got Apple, you've got NVIDIA. These companies have a lot of exposure to international. Global equity positioning uh, up over the past week, investors gaining confidence, buy the dip, okay, fine. US tech amongst markets that have seen the sharpest outflows in January. However, with bulls increasing risk in Europe and Asia. Oh, that's interesting, look at that. Bearish positions, U.S. tech down here, EU staples, EU energy, Japan, bearish, U.S. industrials, U.S. energy. Well, that's a surprise. Uh, whereas what's, what's bullish right now? Bullish, you've got Taiwan, Thailand, EU equity, South Korea, Germany. Germany talking about not going into a recession. Ooh, fascinating. Uh, this is actually really interesting and kind of aligns with some other data that we're seeing. Let's look at some other data that we have. Retail, let's see here. Retail, retail, retail. Uh, muted purchases by retail in ETFs 
which actually indicates potentially a low conviction ahead of earnings. I can go ahead and show this chart right here. This means individual, inv and I actually mentioned this earlier. Here's just the chart to evidence it. Retail investor net purchases, you can see the blue line is single stock purchases. The red line is ETF purchases, mostly uh, uh, like larger index funds like S&P 500, uh, the triple leveraged S&P 500, triple leveraged NASDAQ, actually seeing lower inflows than single stocks or some are saying actively managed ETFs seeing more inflows as well because they are more maybe thematic or more single stock focused than these sort of broader, let's just invest in the entire S&P 500. I think what's happening is retail individuals basically are picking which stocks they think are going to do well in earnings and which stocks have potentially been oversold. Uh, let's see here. Market rally potentially coming from institutional investor short covering. ETFs are experiencing the biggest flow divergences since uh, 2022. Oh, wow. Here we go. We actually have uh, a chart kind of showing us numerically where these flows are occurring. Uh, I'll go ahead and pull that up. Uh, now, now, when you look at flows, some of these ETFs aren't going to be very obvious to us what those are. Uh, so if you're curious, curious, just take a screenshot. And no, I won't show you a, a, a screenshot about that 30% off coupon code that expires. Or sorry, it's more than 30% off. The coupon code that expires on January 30th. I screwed that one up. Best coupon code will have three-month guaranteed price, lifetime access. Uh, pretty, pretty great pricing you can get in uh, lifetime access to those programs. But anyway, here you go. You have inflows going into the semis triple leveraged bear index. Wow. Natural gas, uh, treasuries. It's like cash holdings over here. Whereas you have outflows. Look at where you have the outflows. You actually have outflows on ARC, <clears throat> semis long, Russell 1000s. That's your value. NASDAQ 3X bear. That actually has outflows too. NASDAQ bull has outflows. This sort of reiterates that people, let me show you the rest of the chart there. There we go. This kind of reiterates there. You could take a screenshot like right there. Uh, you can see here that uh, it, it really seems to be the broad-based indices are, are getting hit. And I'm surprised the bearishness on chips because I'm actually personally bullish on, on chips. But anyway, upcoming week should give us a good understanding thanks to earnings. Blended earnings decline for the S&P 500. Q4 is 4.6%. That's the estimate. We'll see what happens. Do keep in mind that uh, retail sales are lagging, right? Holiday sales grew 6.7% from October to December. Sales lagged the average inflation rate of 7.1%. So real holiday sales were actually negative. Uh, probably Q4 was also not as good. You've got the National Retail Federation estimating that holiday sales in November, December grew 5.3%. That was short of the growth estimate of 6 to 8%. So that would be bearish for earnings, right? Q4 will depend on whether or not retailers had to aggressively discount to get their inventory off the shelves. Retail uh, electronic sales expected to be negative 5.6% year over year in December. Again, we saw in, with Logitech numbers, pretty bad. Furnishings and clothing uh, will, be, uh, will, will be interesting as well. We'll see that from American Eagle and Abercrombie. Uh, Macy's says there was a lull of sales outside of holiday weekends. I personally sold my stake in Lulu after their margin guide, and uh, they are reiterating pressures today and, and getting downgrades again today. 
Personally, I've never seen sales at Lulu, and uh, I, I hate to say it, but look, I worked at Hollister, so so maybe I have this like personal like shell shock to sales. But as soon as Hollister started doing sales, it was downhill from there. Hate to say it. Uh, but it's something to pay attention to. Who who knows? Maybe it's just a sort of seasonal, and they they were just getting rid of some of their their excess inventory, and and now they've stabilized. Who knows? Something to pay attention to. So I I would watch that at Lulu since they're generally not a company that's been known for sales. Real disposable income has been deeply in a negative territory. Yep. Uh, job openings and wage gains have moderated from Fed tightening. Savings are depleted, and consumers have either cut back on spending or turned to credit cards. Now, of course, we'll see whether or not retail sales actually hold up, but important things to pay attention to. So uh, that gives us a little bit of insight here into retail, where the positioning is going, where buyers are going. Uh, in my opinion, uh, this earnings season is critical, and it makes sense for stocks to actually trend down slightly before earnings. So I was a little bit surprised with that large rally we had on Monday, uh, especially since usually before the news comes out, we don't get the big rally. Who knows, but I'll never forget the early part of 2022 when we started seeing those bad Netflix earnings, and it was the canary in the coal mine for bad news coming forward. This time, we've actually had better than expected earnings coming out. Pretty much everywhere expect the, the um, real estate sector and some of the discretionaries. Uh, so uh, real estate, for example, DR Horton, massive miss, contracts falling 38%. Huge under-expected uh, result for contracts, 13,382 versus 14,528 expected. They're, of course, blaming mortgage rates. But uh, it's no surprise that uh, real estate is getting whacked. And, and we expect to see the worst of the numbers coming up here within the next uh, two to three months once the case Shiller actually catches up to negative year-over-year -year numbers. So, some thoughts here on a retail. Bitcoin trying to go positive here, still sitting slightly negative, so we'll see how stocks end up moving. But uh, uh, I don't know. Let me know in the comments. What do you think? What's your retail positioning? Are you kind of like a lot of retail right now where you're staying away from those broad-based indexes and you're kind of waiting to see what happens with earnings and you've got money on the sidelines from cash, uh, stock loss harvesting and you're ready to pile in? That's what Vandetrack is arguing, that maybe we could actually have a big bull movement and the bears are going to have nothing left to talk about but the debt ceiling crisis. Kind of crazy, something to pay attention to, and I kind of hope Vandetrack is right. Anyway, let's go ahead and jump on over and see if we've got CNBC covering anything entertaining. Nope, we've got an ad. Okay, well, that's boring. Fine then. We'll look at something else. So, let's see here. Let's see. Da, 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 da. What news do we have? Okay, we have... Uh, ha, 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 ha. PMIs coming out in about 30 minutes. We'll be covering PMIs in the Course Member Live. We've got break-evens on the five-year. Pretty stable right now. Two, three, one. We have... Uh, future still slightly negative. Uh, industrial earnings disappointing. Some pullback in U.S. futures after the sizable rally of the past two trading days. Unsurprising. Well, yeah. Semiconductors got a lift Monday after Barclays upgrades, although AMD is down pre-market after Bernstein downgraded the stock. Chat GBT, Microsoft billions may be good for NVIDIA. Hey, I made a video about that yesterday. Chat GBT is wild. Absolutely wild. Uh, divergence between markets and economy cheapens recession hedges. 
Economists tend to overestimate GDP more frequently by a greater magnitude in recessions. Markets, therefore, do not adequately re reflect downside risk before a downturn hits. Put spreads on the retail and high-yield credit are among attractive recession hedges for portfolios. Wow. Okay. Put spreads on the retail sector. Markets are implying the odds of a recession are falling. While they can influence uh, economies in various ways, such as the availability of credit and wealth effects, it is not easy for them to reverse many months of economic damage through this crazy hiking cycle we've been through. Yeah, no kidding. Well, we'll see. Alrighty then, let's uh, take a brief look here at pre-market. Bitcoin's still down about half of, uh, sorry, quarter of a percent over here. Tesla down about 1.22. NASDAQ dropping as low as about uh, 0.65 here in the pre-market, just in about the last 40 minutes here, getting a larger degradation. Let's see if there are any kind of particularly large movers here. Looks like Camber, Nextdoor, Toast, Faraday, Hive, Meta, Peloton, these guys down over about 3% here. Uh, three to five percent to the downside. Bed Bath trying to push a fifteen percent meme rally again. This one I just think is completely ridiculous. Uh, I, uh, I mean, it's fine to trade. Just be careful hodling this sucker. It's going to BK in my opinion. But again, you want to see a rally here. Make sure you track volumes. That's all it takes. Pretty easy to TA trade some of these in my opinion. Alrighty, let's see what Jimbo has to say. Great American companies that are going down because people feel the economy is going to roar. Got it. Okay, we'll come back to that. We're also all right, boring. Uh, quick reminder that uh, I expect to do these live streams every day, whether or not the market is open. Uh, expect uh, that after these live streams, which I think will be somewhere between 90 minutes to two hours long, uh, which you can now also listen to within about two hours of them happening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You can listen back to it on 2X later if you want. Uh, you know, whatever you want, whatever's convenient for you. You could also contribute uh, things for me to react to to our Discord. All you have to do is go to metkevin.com slash chat, uh, and there's a section called Meet Kevin Report. And uh, there are some comments uh, that uh, that you could reply to. You don't have to be a course member to chat there. Uh, tomorrow, for example, uh, Sebastian is asking me to cover ASML Q4 earnings. Absolutely, we'll have to do that. Uh, we did a video on Japanese yield control uh, previously, so if you're curious about that, uh, you can see that uh, within the last week I've covered uh, Japanese yield control. Not exactly sure what the title of that was, but would be uh, quite interesting uh, if you, if you want to catch up on that. Let's see here. Uh -huh. All right, potential signal for the end of the tightening cycle, says someone here. Let's see here. I got to log in to see this article. It's behind paywall, so I'll pull it up. Uh, while I pull it up, uh, let's see here. Got a lot of talk about rent control happening again, by the way. We might do a, well, I might probably catch up about rent control a little later, but rent control in short is bad. Uh, it, it One of the easiest ways to think about rent control is it kind of takes from future renters and gives to, to current renters. It actually tends to make things worse. I'll probably do a deeper dive uh, video on that uh, a little bit later. I do think that's quite interesting. All right, what do we have here? What's this link that I was given in... So somebody sent this to me in chat, which you can check out by going to, again, metkevin.com slash chat. Let's see what we got here. This particular piece says, hedge fund bond split with institutions may signal Fed cycle end. 
The last time hedge funds and asset managers were this split on the future benchmark treasuries was when the Federal Reserve's tightening cycle was about to peak in late 2018. Net short leveraged fund positions in 10-year futures have grown to the biggest level since 2019, according to the latest data from the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. That's quite interesting. Let's zoom in here a little bit. So if we look here, we've got leveraged fund net positions. That's negative over here. Kind of peak negative over here where the Fed flattened out. And you're kind of potentially getting, well, their argument is here, to peak negativity here as well. <clears throat> Interesting. So they're making an argument based on this particular chart here, if I hide myself for a moment. This argument is being made that maybe we are actually based on just fund positioning itself, getting close to that Fed pivot, which is actually uh, to, to basically 0% hikes, which is actually what you are already seeing getting priced into the futures market, about a 42% chance that the Federal Reserve will keep rates at, uh, uh, stable and not actually hike by 25 points. I don't think that's likely. I think the Federal Reserve is pretty committed right now to doing about a 25 BP hike. Uh, it, but but I do think a pause after that is uh, substantially likely. Uh, I, I don't know if we're going to get another 25 in, in March, and that'll give the Fed plenty of time to assess future data coming in. Keep going back to commercials over here. How boring. All right, let's do another quick check of the markets. And then for the uh, opening bell, I'm going to be hopping over to the course member live stream. We'll do some Q&A. We'll do some fundamental analysis. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll have some fun continuing on. We'll see what Q, uh, PMIs are. Uh, keep in mind, if you use that coupon code down below, you get lifetime access. So even if you want to watch the course member live streams back when it's convenient for you, you could do so on uh, you know, 2x afterwards if you want. However, much like these live streams, you just get more Q&A and fundamental analysis there. Uh, it's also uh, quite interactive. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> Microsoft earnings uh, is at uh, 4.05 Eastern time today. I'm going to try to be live for that, so stay tuned. All right, no big movements here in pre-market. Still sitting about negative 3 to 5% on some companies here. Uh, Meta, uh, Coinbase, uh, Lululemon. I'm actually watching the fall in end phase pretty closely. I really, really hope that end phase plummets more because I'd personally like to allocate a lot of cash that I have left sitting on the sidelines to end phase. I think I'm pretty well allocated to some other positions. So end phase is one that I'm really excited about boosting to uh, since it's gone through this insane euphoria and hasn't actually had its compression yet. And I think as the real estate market weakens, we're going to get some pretty ugly forecasts from end phase and that's going to create some opportunities. Surprisingly, though, the private jet market is actually still killing it. It's very difficult right now to find, uh, this is another holding of mine, Embraer. It's very difficult to find uh, private jets right now. Uh, if you're looking, for example, for like the plane that I have, you can't even find one on the market right now. There's no US Phenom 300E on the market right now. It's insane. Uh, unfortunately, mine is getting its windshield replaced under warranty, thankfully, but uh, they're actually getting it done pretty speedily, but uh, my, my bird should be back up soon, which is pretty exciting. But uh, Embraer's taking good care of us. They are uh, the manufacturer of that plane. But anyway, it, it's quite insightful to see sort of how, how there's, they're still dealing with substantial shortages uh, in the plane market. And if you wanted to buy a new plane right now, you're waiting two years 
before you take delivery on one. If you're lucky, that waiting list is long out, which is pretty insane. Uh, that, that there's still so much demand for these suckers. It's not what I was expecting. But the fact that there are none on the market uh, blows my mind. Uh, for, for the for the Phenom 300E, the E is, is important. There are a bunch of older ones available, but I've seen a lot of those, and some of them are just scary. Either they were smoker planes or, or they're just, like, gross. I don't know. I'm not trying to bag the market. I'm just saying, like, I don't know. I, I, knock on wood, I feel a little blessed. We were able to get what we were able to get. Uh, anywho. Thank you so much for being here. Hope you've enjoyed this. Remember, you can now watch it or listen to it on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts about two hours after it's posted here. And uh, then, um, of course, member live stream starts immediately when this one ends. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you all. Check out that coupon code expiring on the 30th. It's the last coupon code. And uh, you get a three-month price guarantee at minimum. And we'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye.